Good morning. My name is Lisa Igram, and it's a pleasure for me to be here with you this morning. I am um, co-preaching a sermon series with Todd over the next four weeks. In December, he called and asked if I would be willing to do this, um, to share a little bit about what I've been thinking about in a PhD program I am in related to Eucharist. And so in keeping with Epiphany, it actually, this passage goes really well with the theme of Epiphany. Um, This is the start of a four-week series on Eucharist, revealing Christ our King. So just about two years ago, I began a deep dive into the text we read this this morning in 1 Corinthians 11, really with the hope of gaining a deeper understanding of how our embodied engagement with the Lord's Supper is formative for our spiritual lives. By that point, I'd finished a degree at um, Talbot's Institute for Spiritual Formation. And there, for the first time in my Christian life, the idea of our bodies as being valuable and worth tending to, rather than something to be used or tamed or controlled, came to the surface for me, particularly when it came to the ways our bodies um, can be helpful for our spiritual transformation. And so I began to read about this concept of embodiment and what it means to have bodies or to be a body as part of God's creation. I was researching a number of disciplines, just kind of floundering on the very edges. Um, For example, in neuroscience, I learned that a little over a year ago when my niece was born, her brain was actually growing the wrinkles that we think of when we see a brain as my sister was holding her close. And in fact, uh, there's a CT scan that a female neuroscientist did with her daughter that shows that her brain and her daughter's brain were lighting up in the same places. And so in the process of holding a baby close, we're actually helping that little baby's brain form. And actually, that's partly what gives a child the capacity for relationship. I also learned in a different field of study that our language develops from having a body in the world. So my niece Tessa is learning about the concept, for example, of intimacy through her embodied experience. Of course, intimacy is a really abstract concept. It's not something that a one-year-old can describe. But she's learning what this is from my sister and my brother-in-law as they hold her close. She is learning that intimacy feels warm. And when my brother-in-law rocks her to sleep, she's learning that love is closeness. She'll learn to understand these abstract concepts of intimacy and love first through her bodily experience of them. And of course, today, language that we use to describe intimacy is close and warm because that's how we first experience them. There's this whole field of study that takes a deep look at how even the most abstract of words we use to describe the world and our experience it are actually embedded in our own physical experiences. And as I've been reading about our bodies and about our spiritual lives, one of the things that I've come to think is that I think that a primary function of our bodies is for relationship. I think that God created our bodies to be in relationship with each other. Even as adults, our relationships with each other have the capacity to positively impact the formation of our brains, even as adults. And studies have shown the importance of daily, kind, physical touch from others as important for human flourishing. So I think God created our bodies to be in relationship with each other, and that's the lens I've really been using to take a deeper look at what Paul might be talking about in this passage on the Lord's Supper. But I have to admit that as I started diving into 1 Corinthians to better understand the cultural context of what was happening here, I found myself becoming sad and even kind of annoyed because the letter is full of conflict, and I hate conflict. Of course, there's that great love chapter in 13 that's 
incredibly amazing and inspiring, but the rest of the letter really is kind of devastating because in it, Paul addresses divisions in the gatherings at Corinth on a number of levels and on a number of fronts. And Paul's language gets strong and direct, and he uses irony incisively. It's not exactly a gentle or relaxing read. Throughout the letter, Paul calls out the community for ways their behavior and practices, both out in daily life, but also in these gatherings, is fostering division and divisiveness that is absolutely counter to the gospel. You see, one of the crucial aspects of the gospel that Paul discusses and wrestles to describe throughout his letters is this idea that once we have received Christ, we have become one with Christ. We are joined together with him. So 1 Corinthians 6.17 says it really clearly, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And by virtue of being joined together with Christ, we also become joined with one another. And this whole concept of oneness with Christ through the Spirit, with each other, is one of those truths in Christianity that's really hard to understand. It's just very abstract. And Paul uses all kinds of metaphors to talk about our unity in the Spirit as Christ followers. In 1 Corinthians alone, he uses the metaphor of one body as many parts. And actually, this is a Roman political metaphor that Paul repurposes for his use here. He talks about this body of believers in 1 Corinthians 3 as a building, and in chapter 6 as a temple for the Spirit. He talks about that one Spirit empowering each of us with a variety of gifts for the purpose of building up the one body. In Ephesians, Paul talks about Jesus' followers as being the household of God. It's a basic political unit in Roman society. But he also uses the metaphor of marriage to becoming one flesh, to talk about the union and oneness between Christ and the church And he straight up calls this a mystery. But this mystery of union with Christ and subsequent unity with one another through the Spirit, this is a significant theme in Paul's understanding of our salvation in Christ. And Paul has very strong words for the church when there is some kind of breach in this oneness. And we hear this really clearly as Paul begins this section on the Lord's Supper. And I like how directly the message conveys Paul's tone here. He says, regarding this next item, which is just next in a long list of things he had to address, I'm not at all pleased. Another version later says, this is not the Lord's Supper that you practice. When you get together, he says, you bring division with you right into this gathering space where together you are supposed to be encouraging each other as one body in the Lord. And so here I'd like to pause so that we can kind of imagine together what's happening. And to set the stage, it's helpful to understand that there is a convergence of two cultural realities coming together in this, in this passage. First is where the gatherings took place and the fact that the gatherings were very meal-centered. And second is the cultural reality of what these divisions in Corinth might have looked like. So first, the gathering space. Gatherings of Christ followers took place in people's homes. Now, Paul wrote this letter a good generation before buildings like this existed, where people would gather together in worship. And there's a lot of discussion about how big these gatherings were, with estimates ranging from maybe 10 or 20 to really no more than 100 at the very most. And because they gathered in homes, that really dictated the the size of the gathering. Gatherings also centered around meals. And actually, this was a really normal practice in Corinth. 
communal meals were a foundational social practice in the Mediterranean world. Whenever any group gathered for a meal, whether it was a guild of tradesmen or a group that followed a particular philosopher or an association centered on some other kind of interest, the primary purpose of a Greco-Roman meal gathering was for social exchange, experience of community, and often actually centered around religious practices. It would have been really normal culturally for a group of Jesus followers to have a meal together in a home framed by Jesus' words at the Last Supper, which is what we, of course, read in our gospel reading for today. Now, in Greco-Roman meal practice, a meal wasn't just the food. It actually had a couple of parts. The gathering generally started with a meal of meats and side dishes eaten with flatbread. The meat was often from an animal that had just been sacrificed to a god. And after the meal, there was a shared libation, so a cup of wine that would have been shared or maybe poured out on the hearth to kind of honor the god that was the god of the household. And then after that, key part, there was a time of entertainment or of shared learning. Maybe it was a musical or oral performance or maybe a philosophical teaching or sharing that really any guest could contribute to. And of course, meals were also important in the Jewish tradition, from weekly Sabbath meals to meals observed and celebrated to remember God's work and presence in Israel. And the Passover meal from our gospel reading was, of course, a significant annual meal for Israel. Some folks look at Paul's instruction for the gatherings in chapters 11 through 14 and actually see an outline of a standard Greco-Roman meal, instructions around how to eat and then how to engage in worship and teaching and sharing together afterwards. So on the one hand, hold in your minds this, what this gathering looked like. Um, maybe 20, 30, 40 fellow believers in a home, around a meal, followed by a time of teaching and engaging each other with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to the Lord, lasting maybe three or four hours. But then there's another really important cultural bit. So zooming out some, Corinth as a city was a commercial center populated by transplants and immigrants from all over the greater Mediterranean area. It had just a generation before been conquered by Rome. So Romans, original Greek inhabitants, Jewish transplants, these were all segments of the population there in ancient Corinth. Many of the Corinthians were freed persons settled there by Caesar. These were folks who had been conquered by Rome, enslaved, but then freed and sent to live in this new place. The city was com comprised of artisans, foreigners from all around the area, Farmers who'd moved to this urban center, politicians, displaced persons, political exiles, all different kinds of people from all over the Mediterranean, from a variety of different cultures and religions, were gathered in this one city. It was very diverse. And in this culture, at the very forefront of people's consciousness was a person's status. So it was their social standing, their place in the community, Society was built on knowing your place in a group and in larger society. And because it was a new city made of many different kinds of groups, status or social standing could be gained or lost on several fronts. So for example, it was a patriarchal society where men had a higher social standing than women. A person's citizenship gave status. Rome was the center of political power. So if you had Roman citizenship, you had higher social standing. Of course, people who were born free had higher social standing than those who had been born slaves. Marriage status and what family one had married into was important. Of course, socioeconomic class, upper class, lower class, poor. 
And often class was further stratified by employment. So merchants, tradesmen, craftsmen were of a higher social standing than those who labored with their hands. And this is a group that Paul actually identifies himself with earlier in the book. Roman census status, people were given a status for census based on who they were connected to politically. Education or connection to local philosophers or rhetoricians. Actually, early in Paul's letter, he gets on the community because they were saying, I belong to Apollos, I belong to Cephas, I belong to Paul. And Paul says, no, I didn't die for you, Christ did. So in all of these categories, social standing could be gained or lost. A person could enjoy fairly high social standing in their neighborhood, but as they moved about the city, that status could be gained or lost depending on the values or the others who, who made up the group elsewhere. This status inconsistency created a pervasive culture of evaluation, where you'd basically walk into a group of people and immediately size each other up to kind of know where you stood. But really, this was so embedded in cultural and social engagement, it was kind of like the very air we breathe. This is just kind of how it was. It was part of the system of life. So what we have here is a confluence of cultural realities. We have a gathering of Jesus followers, probably Jewish, Greek, Roman, slave, free, men, and women, a variety of socioeconomic classes in a very small group, 10 to 20 people, coming together in someone's home to worship and encourage each other in their faith and to engage in the tradition of Passover, reinscribed, of course, through the death and resurrection of Jesus that Paul had passed down to them. But this pervasive culture of evaluation and ranking and social standing found its way right into the heart of the Corinthian gatherings, right into the homes of Jesus' followers who were supposed to be gathered together for mutual encouragement in their faith. And these imported cultural values and practices were really entirely counter to the unity of the spirit that they shared. So what does this look like, practically speaking? Well, the message picks up on this, really the strongest opinion that the division Paul talks about in the context of this meal is along the lines of socioeconomic status. In a Greco-Roman meal gathering, it actually would have been really common for there to be two menus. One menu for the upper class held in a small dining room where the host would invite those of higher social standing in. And that menu would have been meat, vegetables, really good wine. And then another menu out in the courtyard, bread, wine for those who would have come later. It might have been that the wealthy in the crowd gathered before the craftsmen closed shop for the day or the laborers or slaves were able to get there so that by the time the working class arrived, the food was gone, except for some of the bread and wine that were saved for those words of institution. And maybe some already had a bit too much to drink because excess in upper-class gatherings like this would have been pretty normal. But it may also have been that the upper-class thought that providing the bread and the wine for the rest of the meal was actually helpful to the poor because they were providing for them in some ways. But here, says Paul, in these gatherings, there is absolutely no place for this kind of division among this group. In this gathering of believers, the host of the meal is Christ himself, not the head of the household there in Corinth. Christ himself gives his body as the bread, and his blood as the cup of a new covenant. And this is a covenant that God creates with his people because all are in great need. The gospel doesn't distinguish between social standing or class. In Christ, there is no status. We eat of the one loaf and drink of the one cup. So there really is no place for walking into a gathering and sizing up where your place is and practicing your place 
in a way that fosters disconnect and division. In 1213, Paul writes, for in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of the one spirit. And so Paul's rebuke here, as you heard in the message, it's really strong. This disconnect and division between people does violent damage to the deep truth of the gospel. In the season of Epiphany, we celebrate the revelation of Jesus to the Gentiles, really represented through the kings who came to bow down and put themselves under the lordship of this child. When we receive Christ and place ourselves under his kingship, we, in a mysterious but spiritually real way, also become one with Christ and one with each other. And if a primary function of our bodies is for relationship, then there seems to be something important about the ways our relationships in the body of Christ, both here but also in the church worldwide, reflects a unity of the spirit. Of the spirit. Culturally, of course, the Corinthian emphasis on social standing, it doesn't look the same in an American church setting. But division is still there in other socially or culturally driven ways. It's just part of our human brokenness. In fact, our brains aim for simplicity, and so we put ourselves and others in groups because it's just easier. In my work and other contexts, I've been prompted to think about this passage a lot and about the ways that American evangelicalism seems to be really squarely in the center of the political and social divisions of our larger American culture right now. And in a lot of ways, these divisions have seeped right into the heart of our American church gatherings as Jesus followers. And I've been prompted to be prayerful about my own response. Maybe it's to intentionally foster valuing differences of other people, the way Paul talks about the gifts in chapter 12. Maybe it's choosing to think the best of someone who has vastly differing political or social views than I do. And maybe it's a choosing to listen to the perspectives of those in the body who have been hurt or who are struggling. These ponderings have brought me really to a deep appreciation for the ways that we take the meal each Sunday morning together as one body. We get to see that the wine that is poured out into the two cups has come from one jug, that that bread is broken and shared. We get to see one movement of our body down the aisle for all are in need. And those who offer the bread and the wine also serve and receive from each other. The words of institution that we hear each week are words that have been passed down from Jesus through these earliest gatherings of Jesus' followers, through generations and centuries to us today. I love that in this way we are connected, that we practice a sense of oneness with generations before us, even in the words that we hear and say each week. And I think that somehow each of these embodied practices reinforces the very deep, ontological and difficult to understand truth of our oneness in the spirit, our union together as one body of diverse people, one body with each other here in this church, but also with all the saints who are under the kingship of Christ.